Thanks for joining us for the 2018 7th Annual Stroke Conference, The Pulse of Stroke Rehabilitation. This conference is sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. In this podcast lecture, Helen Horn presented Pharmaceutical Interventions for Stroke. Helen is a clinical pharmacy specialist at University Hospital. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, November 1, 2018 at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Saddlebrook Campus, 300 Market Street, Saddlebrook, New Jersey. For more information about Kessler Foundation Research or Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, click on the links within the description of this podcast. Let's listen in. Uh, I have no disclosure. I uh, don't have any financial relationship with any of medication I'm going to be talking about. And the uh, objective, we're going to go through three focuses, at the antihypertensive uh, post-stroke, the depression um, po medication post-stroke, and the neurostimulant that you might be seeing some of the patients that are on during um, their rehab phase, and the theory behind them and the data behind them. So just, this is just an overview in terms of um, what the impact of a stroke. Um, this is the latest data in terms of the breakdown of what type of stroke. Majority of them are ischemic and um, only 10% are hemorrhagic. And the spread of uh, prevalence is pretty heavily focused on uh, Southeast. Um, New Jersey is up there with um, pretty high prevalence. Um, so it's as the prior speaker had alluded to, um, we're improving, but there are still a lot of new cases and increasing in number of cases in terms of the, any type of stroke. So these are just the, all the medication that could be used in the stroke setting in post-stroke patient. I'm not gonna focus on the first two, the anticoagulant and antiplatelet. That is usually first decided in the hospital setting in immediately post-stroke acute setting. Um, I'm gonna be focusing more on, as I had uh, talked about earlier, in the more of a rehab setting. So why do we care about some of these hypertension, constipation, impaction, early mobilization, fatigue, anti, uh, antidepressant pharmacologically for a rehab? The whole goal is to help you to get patient um, uh, willing to work with the rehab because all the, all the therapy that pharmacological therapy we could give is just mainly to support their, their participation for PTOT um, recovery. Um, so I, first we're gonna dive into the hypertension. Um, the ACC, American College of uh, Cardiology and American Heart Association came out with the 27 17 updated guideline, and this is just a baseline in terms of giving you what is defined as normal uh, blood pressure, what is stage one, what is stage two. Um, the reason why I'm giving you this is um, different patients might have different goal. So some of the patients that you're dealing with, you need to look at. Sometimes they might not be participating because they have too high of blood pressure and they don't feel well to participate in PTOT uh, speech um, therapies. So I'm going through some of the um, primary, the secondary causes that could cause hypertension. Um, so you need to make sure these are not the causes of the, the hypertension patient have because the, the type of um, causes of 
hypertension, you, your management might be different. So it's not necessarily about just dealing, bringing down the numbers. It's also addressing the um, primary reason for the cause of the hypertension. So some of the, the renal disease um, could cause um, high blood pressure. It's relatively low, but a majority of the five to 34% is because of um, renal vascular disease. So a lot of the kidney patients with uh, concurrent cardiac disease have very high prevalence of hypertension. Um, so having a good management in that would in that disease state can help with um, minimizing the medication you need for the medication to treat the hypertension associated with it. So hyperaldosteronism, uh, again, all these is the primary causes. By treating the aldosterone disease, you, don't, you might not need as much of a blood pressure meds. Sleep, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, this is um, becoming more and more prevalent in association with high blood pressure. So it might be some of the patients have uh, hypertension secondary to undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea. Um, look at like it's up to 50% of the patient could have that cause. Um, the drug and alcohol can also cause um, the blood pressure and the rest of them are pretty rare. But um, why, why do you care? Um, again, it goes back to um, treated hypertension can minimize your ability to have the patient participate in the therapy that you could provide that is gonna be um, leading to more of a, a, a functional recovery in the long run. So in the, some of the medication, that was a disease state that could cause high blood pressure. This is uh, some of the medication that can cause uh, elevate, elevated blood pressure. So when you have a patient that you're doing therapy with and you see that their blood pressure is uh, still elevated and are already on hypertension, you might want to see, make sure, uh, I know it's difficult for you to um, remember all these medications. Some of the medications are associated with causing high blood pressure. So um, by looking through the and rule out the medication and look for alternative of medication that can cause um, high blood pressure, um, you're, you could minimizing the, um, the additional polypharmacy that you need to give for the blood pressure control. So some, some of the more common one, uh, NSAID. A lot of the patient, all the stroke patient, majority of them are on aspirin, but uh, it's low risk in, in terms of um, causing high blood pressure, but there's whole other ibuprofen, uh, Aleve, uh, naproxen that can, that allow the patient would be on, on a community level or in your, when they have pain, they, will, they might have that. And ruling out that it's something as common as non-steroidal can help you minimizing the uh, antihypertensive you might need. Steroids, another one, um, I don't think a lot of rehab setting you would have that many patients that would be on uh, steroid, but if you have uh, cushionoid or other disease state that need, needed um, steroid replacement, uh, that might be one of the reasons why um, patient might have high blood pressure. And the whole um, reason behind why do we care or this group care is if they have too high blood pressure, they're not gonna participate or feel well enough to participate with you for physical, physical PTOT or speech and um, 
the having a functional ability to participate and with the recovery is what is going to lead to better outcome in the long run and return of um, more of a normal function. Very busy slide. I'm sorry about this, and I could tell you majority of pharmacists don't even know. Um, I'm just giving you the whole category of diff all different antihypertensive that is out, and that's not even comprehensive. This is probably about 80%, and have a different class of um, medication and what are the representation. The, based on the ACC 2017 ACC AHA guideline recommendation, what is the optimal antihypertensive for post-stroke patient? They said, stated there's no data suggesting one is superior to the other. Um, the recommendation is you use, you look at what comorbidity patient have. So patient who has um, diabetes, you want to think about the ACE, inhib ACE inhibitor. It's the medication ACE inhibitor help with minimizing the, the um, progression of further renal impairment, but by having a ACE inhibitor use as hypertension, then you get to um, decrease the primary disease with the best data suggesting which drug is best for the other disease may, they may have. Heart failure, it's ACE inhibitor, spironolactone, and beta blocker. So you, for, I know a lot of these talks is geared to a board physician, that what medication should be used, but for you, sometimes you could, it just look at what the patient is on, um, might help you associate what you could speak to your physician about in terms of um, uh, what's going on with patient's blood pressure. Is it not under control? Can we add another one that might have other underlying cause of um, underlying medication that can cause the other comorbidities. So this is very busy. Majority of the data, um, I know for our hospital, we use um, nifedipine, um, extended release a lot, and a lot of it that gets actually better control for our patient. And based on the literature, there is no optimal agent that is um, best for the stroke patient. And according to the guideline, um, uh, they had suggested uh, um, the post-stroke. It is reasonable to restart the antihypertensive just a few days after the index stroke event. So uh, you don't have to wait too long. There's a right now a um, argument about where is the goal for acute hypertension control, um, but this is past that acute phase where um, the recommendation is to start the antihypertensives, this is whole, the whole thing is to reduce the, the um, recurrence of the stroke. And then for post-MI, if you don't have any other comorbidity, the thiazide theoretical ACE or ARB are good um, therapy to start with, and then you keep on um, at titrate up on the dose, and then um, at a combination to get a, a more of an effect to get to the goal that you want. Um, so for the patient that wasn't on any antihypertensive, the blood pressure goal according to the ACCAHA is um, uh, if they were greater than 140 over 90, that's a stage two of the of the hypertension. Um, if they are 
above 140 over 90, you should start an antihypertensive, even if they weren't on it before. Um, again, go back to which antihypertensive is based on comorbidity. Um, then the post-stroke blood pressure control, they don't know exactly based on the data what is the optimal uh, for the long term, not the acute phase. It's uh, reasonable to be less than 130 over 80. You don't need to drive them down to the normal 120 over 80, but 130 over 80 is reasonable based on the, the guideline. Um, same thing uh, with the uh, lacunar um, stroke, again, it's uh, less than 130. And for the untreated hypertension, you don't want to drop it too low, too fast. So the recommendation is um, to start a medication if, uh, if actually, if the blood pressure was less than 140 over 90, there's really hasn't, there's not enough data to suggest we need to start a uh, antihypertensive. Only if it's greater than 140 over 90 that the, the recommendation to start a antihypertensive. Again, this is based on not allowed data. There's not allowed uh, studies being done in the long-term post-rehab. Um, that's why it was difficult for me to do the pharmacological aspect of a long-term post-stroke. Um, for the constipation and fecal impaction in the rehab setting, why do we care? Um, the reason why this is important is um, that it could influence, if they are constipated, they might not want to participate with you in PTOT. And, the, uh, and you need to provide information or help the patient understand the less you participate in mobility and in activity, that you're gonna have more of a constipation. So the, in our, it, um, the recommendation is you use medication, pharmacological, um, only after you get all the other things um, optimized. So if they didn't have any fluid, fiber, diet intake, you try to make sure that's appropriate. Um, and the mobility and inactivity is very, very important. Um, and depression and anxiety can cause them not to want to participate. So we'll talk a little bit about depression and data behind depression later. And um, if they, they have neurogenic um, bowel disorder, um, they won't be able to know that they have constipated. And if they are cognitively unable to assess, that could also cause constipation. But all, if we could get eliminate or minimize all the other causes, then you think about the treatment, giving the bulk, giving the fluid and bowel training back to what they were on before they had the stroke, usually would help them in um, recovery and only when the medication is a last resort, when you optimize or try all the other agent because um, um, actually it, you want to make sure that it eliminates the, the, the constipation first then try to improve all the other fluid fiber and everything then um, don't do a scheduled stool softener unless you, uh, it's proven that patient always has constipation. So sleep di disturbance also can cause um, um, the minimized ability for the patient to participate with you in terms of the rehab schedule process. So making patient awake during the day to do rehab so that they are not wide awake in the middle of the night can help with the, the recovery process. Um, so in terms of there's a sleep disorder 
that um, might also cause patients not to sleep well. It's when they, it's apnea during sleep where they wake up in the middle of the night because they, they have like 10 seconds or more of numb breathing and that's what, what causes the, the sleep disorder and um, um, inability to participate because they didn't have a restful sleep. And that's something that needs to have a diagnose um, being done by the physician. Um, the benzodiazepine, it's been um, as a last resort. The reason why is it, there's a residual um, sedation and slowness of participation. The next day, a majority of benzodiazepine, that can influence your, your ability to engage a patient for physical therapy. Um, and again, which is the, ben the best sleep aid? There's not a lot of data um, in terms of the, the stroke patient. So this is the um, one that, the topic that I <laughs> knew nothing about um, when I was doing this. Um, the, I know the physician prescribed a lot of these medication and um, the whole concept was to help in the injured brain in post-stroke, there is a, a con the connectivity of the impulses between the synapses that, um, that is impaired in post-stroke patient. And there are a lot of the, the different um, CNS uh, specialists are trying to look at if there's any medication that can help with um, stimulate the reconnection of the injured brain in terms of the synapses so that they, it ultimately goes back to help with your um, assessment or ability to, to participate in the, the PTOT re recovery process. So um, it also stimulate, modulate the cortisol excitability, which is, will lead to the uh, functional motor learning. Um, the protocol that has been done since 90s, um, a lot of them are very small and all of them have been very unsuccessful in showing that it does um, optimize the, the motor recovery process. Um, so there are some of the things that's been um, done. Electrical is a shock to the brain in terms of increase the synapses releasing of the, the granule or into the granule in the presynaptic fiber and um, the, all of them are electrical current um, stimulation. So the pharmacological one that they have looked at, these are the different classes. Again, it goes, some, some of the medication you might see that's been used, um, it, a lot of this is based on theoretical benefit of increasing the synap synapses and, and con communication of the neural neuron um, and redeveloping the connection between neurons for a recovery of the CNS uh, neurons. But none of this has been shown to make any difference. Um, some of the problem um, it is like the most recently they, there was a um, study that kind of looked at the database in terms of the base, in terms of all the patients that were prescribed the neurostimulant so the neurostimulant that um, were looked at with um, methylphenylate, uh, levodopa, imanidine, and bromocritine. 
um, I think a lot of the patients in the stroke center are on these medication. The whole theory behind it is to stimulate the, the CNS uh, neurons. And they looked at the total patient that they looked at was over a thousand, and this is big for this type of study. Um, um, and, but it, the problem is this retrospective um, database data mining. 80% um, of the patient did not have uh, any of the medication that was targeted um, to see compared to 20% that received any of those uh, medication. They did not find any of these medication have any impact on the, the uh, length of stay, motor recovery, cognitive recovery, or discharge. Again, this is not prospective. This is more retrospective looking at what they were on. Um, did it make a difference compared to the patient that did not receive any of this? So th this whole area is very fertile for long-term study. Um, I think earlier I showed you one of the uh, slides. There's actually a ongoing trial from um, three different smaller trials that um, one was done in France, the other one was done in, uh, in Australia and New Zealand, and another one in Sweden. They're combining all their uh, database and try to find out more meaningful result in prospectively looking at if any of these medications make any difference. We're gonna have to wait until, uh, to see if it really make any difference in terms of the functional recovery, speed of recovery, length of stay, and all that. But I just want to give you guys the data in terms of right now, there's really nothing um, that has suggests that definitively this is going to make a, any difference. So this, I just went through some of the trials. Take a look at the N. It's the number of patients that's been looked at. It's very, very small. It's like the biggest is fit, uh, 53, and that's with the levodopa study. And um, the, a lot of these um, were very short-term assessment. It's, um, um, weeks to, to three months in terms of assessment, their improvement, and a lot of them were, um, the, for the last one with 53 patients, um, there was an improvement in the motor recovery using the uh, levodopa, but again, um, we don't know enough and the end is too small to make sure that this really is going to be um, uh, sustained for the long-term meaningful recovery. But I just want to give you guys some data in terms of this is more of um, to help with the f uh, future study with a bigger, more robust perspective studies. Um, notice all the medication that's being used is, this is not even like a quarter or a tenth of what's been out there, but all of them are very, very small studies. So the depression is the one that uh, probably um, something that you guys could help with um, a lot more in terms of the, when you're doing PTOT with, with a patient and patient didn't want to participate, seem depressed. Um, you, there is um, more data about that like, depression probably could help with, uh, addressing the depression probably could help with um, um, participation with PTOT. Um, just to let everybody um, be more aware, depression is normal in post-stroke. Um, especially depends on how, if they lost their, their uh, functional status at baseline, they, if you, it was you, um, you will be depressed. Um, not everybody um, will deal with depression the same way, but um, 
I just keep that in mind that that the the severity of of um, ability to function at the baseline will will tend to lead, lead to more depression. And if you look at the statistics, about a third of the stroke patient can have stroke uh, depression because of their their functional um, impairment. And some of the um, un, 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 identified cause could be patient was depressed before they had the stroke and just mask it and add it to um, the ability to like now with the loss of function their uh, their depression um, is presented a lot more prominently and earlier um, so so these are the some of the um, the type of stroke that patient could have in the type of um, Depression, they could they could develop secondary to just for your information. Um, so the right anterior lesion can cause more of an apathy. So that's more of like organic brain damage that ca causes a type of depression. Um, the other medical condition could be hypothyroidism or Addison. And again, those if they could rule out by sending a TSH or um, the cortisol level, it could help with not just adding the antidepressant to the patient. Um, some of the medication can actually cause depression. So uh, sedatives like the benzodiazepine I alluded to earlier can also lead to depression. And uh, uh, anti some of the antihypertensive, some of the beta blocker, um, can like propionolol, can also lead to depressions. And again, stroke patient has organic brain damage. So the treatment um, for the depression, the diagnosis is very, very, very important because it makes you um, take the appropriate path in terms of um, resolving the depression. Uh, first of all, rule out the medication induced. So the, the sedative and um, changing or removing the sedative or using other agent, um, or antidepressant changing to di different class. If you remember that the antihypertensive you use doesn't matter unless you have other causes. You could always try if you think that that patient has depression, change a different agent to just rule out. It's some of the medication that's induced. So sleep disruption is more of that. Make sure patients not due to the inadequate sleep, too noisy of a room, or um, whatever sleep apnea or the other causes. Um, the mild depression, it's not recommended to start anti, antidepressant, uh, antipsychotic. It's more of to reorient patient and encouragement. Um, and then when you get more severe, maybe think about the antidepressant. The whole reason why is because any medication you give, there's going to be a risk. And there's going to be a higher prevalence of um, uh, risk for adverse reactions secondary to the medication you add. Um, Based on the depression, that's the recommendation, but there's actually some data that suggests in the patient that post-stroke, without really having the symptom of depression, there's some data suggests that uh, antidepressant actually can help with the functional um, participation with the, the recovery process. So again, look at the end. It's relatively small in terms of the medical literature. One of the biggest one um, is this flame trial that I alluded to in terms of it was done in Fran France. Uh, it uses the uh, Prozac fluoxetine 
to test if patient was um, would improve in motor function. And this is motor function recovery is a surrogate marker because it it's more of looking at if patient can participate with you in terms of the physical rehab process. So, but this is the more of an outcome, hard outcome that they wanted to look at. Um, they only look, they looked at 118 patients, and that's a big study for this type of um, trial. Um, that there was only 59 patients in the fluoxetine group and 59 in the placebo. There was um, a, a 90 days when they looked at the functional outcome. There was a, a statistical improvement in terms of the um, FMMS value from 17.1 a baseline to 34. And for placebo, it didn't increase just as much in terms of the um, the improvement in functional outcome. The, um, again, as I alluded to, the adverse reaction associated with medication is more prevalent in the medication treatment arm. So there's more confusion, sedation, and tremor. So um, the other medication, again, this pretty small. Um, this one is the earliest one, uh, the l most recent one in 2018. This is a double-blind uh, randomized perspective trial that look at selective PAM and fluoxetine. And again, the population on each arm is only 30. Um, but it did show that there is significant improvement in terms of the uh, modal recovery measured by FMMS in 90 days that either antidepressant does have a, a better improvement um, than um, placebo alone. So, um, this is just one of the trials that actually break it down to the placebo and the uh, Lexapro plus uh, uh, placebo or placebo plus just cognitive and then um, um, and looked at it's approximately equal arm in 70 patients um, per arm and looked at if there's any um, improvement in giving the antidepressant. This is a one that does the early antidepressant um, um, medication enrollment. And they, in, they start putting the patient on the medication at discharge or at three months, six months, and nine months. See if the timing of the introduction of the um, uh, antidepressant make any difference. The highlighted one, the depression is not necessarily associated with medication, it's associated with their ability to go back to independence. So what you guys do makes a lot more of an impact in terms of the development of depression than, than um, the medication alone. Um, and the medication seem to have a better uh, effectiveness in antidepressive uh, treatment um, than just uh, the cognitive therapy alone. So. Uh, the, this finding is that the cognitive therapy probably is going to be more effective at the later stage and nine months period. So this is just a, a overview. They, they did a, a, a meta-analysis of all the trials that contain uh, 10 different trials, I mean 10, 12 different trials of um, 10 different agents to see which antidepressant is um, the best agent for patient who might be depressed and post-stroke. Um, so the, the x-axis is the efficacy, did they help with the depression? And the, the y-axis is about acceptability or 
refusal um, to take the medication. So the, if you could look at the fluoxetine, actually, it, um, that was the one of the bigger flame trial that looked at it. There is efficacy seemed to be not as high as um, um, the, the furthest one on the top, um, the Paxil, that one has seemed to be high efficacy and high acceptability. So again, this, all these data, it's not very, because all of them are very small. That's why it's a 10 different agent, very small um, analysis, all different agent. We need to test this, but just for your information, um, this whole topic about pharmacological uh, intervention post-stroke is still a lot of work that we need to do. But uh, it seems that Paxil is a better agent based on this meta-analysis. Um, that's pretty much I, all I have in terms of um, the pharmacology. I know it's not allowed relevant to you as a PTOT, but I just want to introduce some of the information that's available for you to um, think about in terms of your patient not participating. Just try to see if there's some medication that we could switch around to see if it, it can make any difference in participation. Everything you do is a lot more important than any pharmacological right now based on the data. Thank you. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.